Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillness Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. We've got some great guests lined up and some very interesting conversations ahead of us. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Coming up on today's show, Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue in New York. It's had a revamp and the landmark building isn't the full story. We're going to talk about what makes the brand so special and its very colourful corporate life. Later on in the show, family dysfunction, power grabs, sibling rivalry. No, we're not talking about the HBO hit show Succession. We're talking about the royal family. And I'll be asking political expert Will Hutton of The Observer and Guardian newspaper about the status of the relationship between the monarchy and the people of England as they crown their new king. But before all that, and to kick us off today, could lithium be the crown jewel in Latin America's economy? Well, more and more governments seem to think so as they're taking it under state control. So let's start with that. And if you're thinking lithium doesn't matter to you, well, then think again, because if you own a mobile phone or a laptop, it certainly does matter to you. And why are we talking about it now? Well, recently, the president of Chile has revealed plans to bring the lithium industry in Chile under state control. Now, his plans are falling a little short of nationalisation, but it is something that's happening in Latin American countries. And we wanted to examine what it means for pricing and whether or not we could be looking at an OPEC-style Latin American alliance on lithium production. Joining me now to discuss is Harry Dempsey of the Financial Times. Harry, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Thanks for having me on. Now, as I mentioned, there's some left wing governments in Latin America are moving to bring lithium production under their control. But before we get into that, you might explain in a much better way than I can uh, why and how lithium are so important in today's world. Well, lithium is a really important ingredient in the batteries, which go into, as you've mentioned, personal electronics, but also electric car, um, electric cars. So they're really going to be important for the transition to uh, a cleaner um, economy where we have fewer fossil fuels and we get rid of um, petrol and diesel cars. And lithium in particular is important because um, there's different kinds of battery chemistries and they've managed to engineer out some of the uh, metals like um, cobalt and nickel. Um, and in China, there's um, batteries that don't use them. And they've really, um, you know, the, the use of those has, has rocketed in um, mm. the last couple of years. But lithium is the one element which, um, no matter which chemistry you use, um, it's it's still in there. Um, and it's, it's a lot more difficult to engineer out. Um, and so mm. lithium really is going to be central to the transition. The other reason why it's very important is uh, it's a nascent industry. You know, demand for lithium wasn't big um, until a few years ago. And with electric cars really taking off, the increase in demand is massive. And the transition that we're hoping to make to electric cars, we're trying to do it very quickly. But mining projects take a long time. They typically take mm. seven to 10 years to get a mine up and running. Yet we have these targets um, in Europe um, to um, phase out combustion engine vehicles by 2030 in the UK, 2035 in the EU. And because of that, um, you know, there's a there's a real race on here to get production up and running in time. Mm. And a bit like the energy industry, which, again, takes a long time for a lead in. There's a lot of regulations involved in it. There's no quick fix solution. But like, where is the bulk of lithium produced? Where does it come from? Well, most of it comes from Australia um, at the moment. And then Chile um, is, 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 is the third biggest producer. And China is actually a very, very big producer um, from a lot of their domestic resources. 
Mm. So as the third biggest producer in the world, what happens in Chile is is very important. So maybe uh, if you could take us through the proposals that are being made by the government there um, and about how important also uh, lithium is to the Chilean economy itself. So just to sort of set a bit of the background, it's useful to understand what the um, the current landscape is in um, the Chile lithium industry. So there are two big companies at the moment producing it from um, the Salars. And so they are these brine resources and they evaporate ponds to produce um, the lithium and then they take it to a chemical plant where they process it into battery grade material. You can also produce lithium from hard rock, which is done in places like um, Australia, but that tends to be more energy intensive and therefore the carbon emissions can be higher. Um, and that tends to get processed in China. And so in Chile, you have these two companies there now. They're called SQM, which is a Chilean company. It actually has a very strong connection to um, Pinochet, who was the dictator there. Um, one of their big shareholders is the former son-in-law of, of Pinochet. And then you also have Albemarle, who is a US-based company, which is also um, extracting um, lithium in Chile. And so these new proposals put forward by the president, which they propose to um, have greater involvement of the state by taking a 51% stake in the projects, affect, may primarily affect these two companies. But the government has mm -hmm. said that um, it will not affect these companies until their concessions run out. And the mm. concessions for SQM runs until 2030. The concession for Albemarle runs until 2043. And... There is a possibility now that there will be negotiations between um, Cadelco, which is the um, Chilean copper company. Uh, it, it has sort of um, state backing um, to, to negotiate with SQM and Albemarle over perhaps being involved at an earlier stage in um, in terms of taking a, a stake in these in these projects. But obviously, it would have to it would have to give something to those companies, for example, extending their concession or allowing them to have higher production quotas to to basically produce more lithium before their concession runs out. So we are give and take there. Um, so mm. a lot of these proposals have come out, but actually, there's no there's no there's no bill yet. It still has to go through Congress. So there's still a lot of details that are yet to be hammered out. And so mm. I think actually a lot of the reaction to it has been rather sort of alarmist and sensational. And a lot of people are saying, look, there isn't really going to be an impact at least for the next six years um, on the lithium market. And then when people are trying to do new projects there, and there is some exploration going on in other Salars in Chile, they will then have to come under this same model of having um, a 51% um, state ownership. So um, mm. it will set the model going forward. I think one thing that is also important to note is that the lithium companies um, operating there already pay quite a lot in royalties. So last year, um, SQM paid um, over five billion US dollars to the Chilean Treasury. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm understanding you right, um, the the government want to are proposing to take some stake in the ex in in the mining, but the exploration and production would still be left to private companies and of course this is something i think that um chile have done successfully in the past maybe in the 1970s when they did the same with copper so maybe it is about re or is it about reinventing that type of a model well it's not clear at this stage quite how it's going to look in terms of who would actually have operational control because a 51 percent stake is a majority stake and therefore you would you would think that um, 
whoever is going to operate these assets would be either the Chilean um, copper company, which I mentioned, Cadelco, which has state backing, or they might make a new state entity, um, mm. which is a national lithium company to do that. That is going to be challenging to do because lithium, um, as I said before, is a nascent industry and there isn't many companies that are experienced in uh, producing this. And even the big lithium companies um, operating are having difficulties um, getting new projects to come up and come up on time. Um, and there's always a delay that is announced. Um, so this is difficult to do and you need a lot of technical expertise. Um, mm. And that really does not, lie not with the private that, companies. That, yeah, that's not something that the governments uh, will necessarily have themselves. So they, they really do need the industry. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. And I'm talking to Harry Dempsey of the Financial Times about lithium in Latin America. Just looking at the other countries who have moved uh, in this area, particularly uh, in the Latin American area, as I say, how does what's happening in Chile compare to, say, what's been happening in Argentina or Mexico in relation to this industry? Well, Argentina is an emerging success story for lithium. They have a, a, a large number of projects under development and they've been uh, doing really well to attract investment. Um, and I've spoken with the um, mining minister there and they tend to say that the reason why they've been able to do so well is that their model is um, relatively decentralized. So the local provincial governments will have um, a lot more um, of, of control over you know, ne negotiations and discussions with um, uh, the companies themselves. Um, but the big, the big danger there is obviously what happens to the economy. Will there be some sort of uh, shift in central government policy? And Argentina um, you know, is not necessarily the most stable place to invest. So you know, they're doing quite well, but there are definitely risks there that, that people are wary about. On the other mm. hand, Mexico has really botched it and they have gone for a sort of full-blown nationalization, which has really, um, it's turned off um, people investing in that sector. There was a, um, a London-listed company there called Bacanora. I really would not be surprised if there is a, a, a lawsuit to come um, for the Mexican government there. And then uh, I think also outside the region, uh, well, I mean, also still inside the region, mm. when you think of Panama, they've recently been having a dispute over tax royalties with a uh, Canadian copper company. You also look in Botswana, there's a, a dispute right now between um, De Beers, the big diamond company, and, and the government over how um, the diamonds are marketed and sold and who gets their fair share. And so I think it's it's important to think of this not just as a Latin America. I mean, obviously, there you have, have a sort of left-wing governments where where a lot of these sort of big announcements do appeal to um, the electorate. But it's also, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic where governments have COVID-sized holes in their um, in their finances, which they need to fill. So there is pressure on governments to recoup um, money and, and the mining companies are a good target. And there is also this narrative around the battery metals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, mm. that, that, you know, Demand is growing massively. The prices are rallying. And, and I think that only then incentivizes the government to say, well, why shouldn't we get our fair share of the slice and, and, and make sure it benefits our population? Um, mm. So I think that's, that's on the one side of, you, you know, you have this nationalization tax element. I think there's, there's a third sort of prong to it as well, which is governments want um, uh, greater beneficiation done in country. So that means not just extracting the resource, but also doing the processing and turning it into, into sort of battery grade chemicals and then um, building um, chemical plants and then also building battery facilities and then, you know, ultimately trying to build a domestic automotive industry. 
And Indonesia has been probably the most aggressive country doing this, and they've banned exports of um, raw nickel ore to, to, to basically stop com- companies exporting that. And, and they then have to build these processing facilities in the country uh, and, and slowly work their way up the value chain or down the value chain. Yeah, and China have also made great strides, I think, in, in relation to their ownership of these precious natural resources and, and how much in demand they are at the moment, I suppose, is certainly playing into geopolitical politics all around the world. I just want to ask you about that um, suggestion from some of the countries, particularly Bolivia, Argentina and Chile, who've discussed this idea of an OPEC-style Latin American lithium producers sort of cartel, if you like. Um, that sort of, uh, you know, confirms what you're talking about, that that they wanted to take the opportunity for themselves as states to not just leave it to the private investors, but in a general sense. How does this work? You cover uh, commodities and and natural resources all the time. Uh, Is it good to have state intervention in these or do you need uh, the the big companies with, with, you know, the resources, the technical expertise, the engineering, the modern new uh, technologies or can the state be a helpful interlocutor in in natural resources in this way i think the the state involvement in natural resources is is only growing because of how stringent the demands are to get to net zero by 2050. So you've mm. seen it in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act. And I mean, the lens that we're often looking at this at in terms of when we talk about resource nationalism is the focus on the country with the resources and um, sort of painting them out to be uh, sort of that term resource and nationalism itself is quite pejorative in, in, in the sense that, you know, should they really be doing this and, and violating mm. the free market economy? But you look from everywhere from uh, Europe to the US, you know, the policies there are becoming increasingly interventionist in terms of having state-directed funds um, into natural resources. And so the US is moving towards this. The EU too has um, signaled that it's going to invest in projects of strategic importance, which don't necessarily have to be inside the EU for um, critical minerals. So mm. I, would, I, would, I think that's an important framing that, that, that this... Um, this sort of resource nationalization or, or greater state involvement in resources is increasing across the board and not just in the countries with the resources. Having said that, mm. you know, the countries uh, that, that um, have these resources, it has to be done in the right way. Otherwise, there is a big risk that you either turn off investment or you do just open the door to the Chinese because the Chinese state-backed companies, um, their concern is securing the resources. It's not necessarily making a profit. Whereas Mm. Western companies, they need to do both. And very often now they're struggling with regulations from governments who are trying to catch up with industries rather than, I suppose, the the free market and the free regulatory environments that they may have been used to in the past. Just one final question very briefly, because we're running out of time, Harry. What what does this do for a country like Chile, who's also trying to deal with its own uh, transitional targets in terms of uh, environmental progress? Well, I think it's yet to be foreseen. Um, I mean, the, the, it, it's extremely—it's an extremely difficult question because I think you have this trade-off wherever you look with the energy transition in terms of or, or in mining projects, where you might have some localized environmental destruction, uh, which actually then is for the benefit of the world. And so, mm. you know, if we do produce more lithium from Chile, okay, that's great for the rollout of electric vehicles and emissions globally. But you might damage a fragile ecosystem which is extremely arid up in the desert and that is a big concern for the Chilean government that increasing 
production in those solars will damage um, a very unique um, ecological system. And so there's always that trade-off that that is being considered. And I think Chile, I think through doing this, what they're trying to do is send a signal and boost competition in the industry. Whether they've communicated it in the right way or not is definitely an open question. And it's certainly sent tremors through the market in, 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 the, in the sense that SQM's share price, it, it took a real beating. Um, which suggested, you know, it's, it's sent fear among those international investors. And so I think it's really yet to be foreseen. I think the onus is on the Chilean, Chilean government to, to, to really explain what those policies mean and to, um, to make the market a little bit less jittery. Yeah. Certainly challenges ahead for uh, Gabriel Burke and his government because they, they don't even have a majority. But Harry, thank you so much for taking all this time to explain this to us today. We really appreciate your time. That was Harry Dempsey of the Financial Times. Thank you. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, finally, in the UK, across the water, we see the public mood swinging between apathy, indifference and monarchy mania this week. So we wanted to take a deeper look beyond the pomp and the pageantry and examine the relationship between the monarchy and its people in 2023. And who better to decipher the psyche of the British public than political economist and writer for The Observer and Guardian, Will Hutton. Will, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Pleased to be, pleased to be on your show again. Now, Will, you're also co-chair of The Purposeful Company, which is a business organisation, I guess, with its finger on the pulse of what's happening in the UK. So before we start our uh, discussion on the relationship between the two, uh, can you just give us an idea of what percentage of people uh, might identify as royalists in 2023 in the UK? It's very low. I mean, the, there's a, there are various opinion polls on this, but... Um, it's it's very low. I mean, it's less than a third, um, and some and some polls have it as low as twenty percent, depending on the question you ask. Right. Um, but the big point is um, uh, that the mass of the British public are kind of neither against the monarchy nor nor possibly for it. They're just indifferent. Yeah, yeah. We're certainly getting a sense of that here from all the coverage. But um, really, what I wanted to examine with you today, Will, was um, what has changed in. Britain since the last coronation 70 years ago like we just at this remove kind of see its sense of itself and its nationalism and Britain and Scotland obviously has changed fundamentally but also we've talked in the past about the soft power the strength of the Commonwealth and even the strength of the church but could you just give us that sort of juxtaposition of what has changed between now and 70 years ago for the monarchy? Well where do you begin? I mean when Queen Elizabeth was crowned Queen. I mean, Britain was more or less homogeneously kind of Christian, um, white. Um, it had just won a major war. Uh, it was a major manufacturing power still. I mean, it was uh, just uh, its share of world trade and manufacturers was very high. Um, sterling was an international currency. Um, there was still actually a substantial empire in Africa, uh, although it, India had been decolonized in 1947. Uh, there were British colonies all over Africa, the West Indies, uh, and, and parts of Asia. Um, the, there was a substantial military presence um, east of Aden um, in the Indian Ocean and beyond. Um, 
We'd fought a war in South Korea, and uh, it wasn't stupid in the 1960s for Lyndon Johnson to really want the British to join the Americans in fighting the war in Vietnam. Mm. I mean, Britain was a, was a could claim really to be a great power, and uh, but in 2023, I mean, uh, as every listener on your show must know, um, on every single one of those axes, uh, Britain is a much diminished place mm. militarily, diplomatically. Um, uh, in terms of um, religiosity, faith, in terms of actually uh, it's much more of a multicultural society. Um, it's economically much less powerful than it was. It's made a major policy mistake in leaving the European Union, in my view, which is a view that actually is now shared by three-fifths of the population and rising almost every week. Um, so everything has changed. But, I mean, it's not – so it's it's a very, very, very different setup. And yeah. actually uh, – you know, uh, in 1953, when the Queen Elizabeth was was made queen, you could kind of believe that maybe there was a god up there um, infusing the the kind of anointed oil to kind of kind of uh, continue the myth that in some way monarchs had a divine relationship with the Almighty. Uh, no one believes that in 2023. Things are so different. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that really sets the context for um, the the reign of, of Prince, sorry, of, of, of King Charles III. Uh, You've got to make the gear change. Yeah, exactly. And and, and, and and he's he's obviously inheriting, because that's what this is. It's inheriting power, no matter what we talk about, religious ceremonies and everything, he's inheriting power. But it does set a very different landscape. Um you know, for 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 his reign, and and that's very important to 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 try and contextualize what it, it is he is taking over. So let's talk about the relationship then between the monarchy and the people as it stands, and in the context of all of that, are they looking to King Charles as the Great White Hope? Because you know, as a as a figurehead, will he fulfil a role like that in your view for them? Um, in some respects, um. He might. I mean, he is a. Uh, I don't know him personally, uh, although I have friends who do. Um, and my and my and my, um, my my wife who died sadly seven years ago uh, worked with him. Uh, and I mean, all their reports are that he is, uh, despite having a short temper, um, a genuinely well-intentioned guy with great values, very kindly. Um, and um, whether it be, you know, his commitment to um, uh, the environmental cause, the morning after the referendum, uh, he spoke to one friend of mine virtually in tears saying what a catastrophe it was, not particularly because he was for against the European Union, but he thought the European Union was a force for good on climate change and not to be part of it was would set the cause of climate change back in Britain. And he'd been right, of course, on that. Mm. Equally, I mean, he launched the Prince's Trust which is probably still and strongest and best organisation to train young people in the country, and cumulatively over the last, over the, um, the, since it's been launched in, in late fifties, early sixties, I mean cumulatively it, it's trained you know, more than half a million, approaching a million people owe their skill sets to the, what the former Prince of Wales, now King Charles, has done. So he's a, I think there's a kind of. Um, you know, you, you, you know, monarchy is absurd in, in the 21st century. Uh, 
and all the pomp, pomp and pageantry makes no sense. Uh, if you're, if you, and he knows that, mm. but his kind of he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If you try and kind of modernize the monarch and kind of don't have a coronation ceremony and uh, and and uh, kind of make it independent of all the things that kind of authorize monarchy, you kind of end up kind of with a. Uh, there's no kind of magic to it, uh, and lo- and of course you lose that core twenty percent, which is still there um, as royalists, small and all as it is. You 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 have to hang on to 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 what you have. Just exactly. to, he, so you're right, like he does. And come, so, sorry, yeah. And, 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 and he, so if you're trying to go the way and kind of you know, you know, do it all in a kind of you know open dock, open kind of kind of open roof car or whatever, waving to the crowd, you know, wearing a suit and no pageantry. You kind of, you know, you diminish this, the the whole thing. So he's hung if he does, and hung if he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were going to ask. No, I was just saying you're right. He does come across as a thoroughly decent um, man. Maybe not the most dynamic man, but he he definitely does come across as, as a very decent man. Um, you have spoken in the past uh, about the consequences for the royal family um, of Brexit, and and particularly at the passing of the Queen about how she was very useful in terms of soft power for for Britain around the world. So, just could you just give us a flavour of where you think the Commonwealth countries are at now, and what do you think his agenda will be towards keeping some of those larger ones as part of the Commonwealth? Well, I thought I, I mean. <sighs> It's tricky. This, I mean, the West Indians are, are the most uh, are the strongest in actually wanting to kind of sever the relationships with uh, the Crown, but not actually leave the Commonwealth. I mean, already we uh, the Bahamas has gone and joined actually uh, um, the Chinese um, kind of um, kind of belt the kind of what the Silk Belt kind of strategy, which I think has been is a, is a cataclysmic mistake. Um, and Jamaica is is going to follow, but actually, I think where the Canadians and the Australians and the, and the New Zealanders are, and the South Af- and the South Africans, you know, is, is kind of you know uh, more or less where the British are. I mean, it's mm. you know you kind of you kind of keep it because um, it, 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 it's it's it doesn't seem to be constitutionally important. It is constitutionally important in Britain, of course. I mean, I think that the. Um, uh, that's where I think the real the, where the rubber hits the road. I mean, a lot of the uh, ex- executive power, uh, extreme executive power, that Europeans have been so horrified. The you and Ireland have been so horrified seeing the British Prime Minister exercise in the negotiations over leaving the European Union, proroguing Parliament, you know, having treaties which will break international law, and having so much executive discretion with no comeback, lies in the fact that actually. If you're a, if you're if you're the British Prime Minister, you exercise the power not only of being an elected Prime Minister uh, because you have a majority in the House of Commons, but you're you're exercising monarchical power mm. uh, kind of on behalf of the monarch. So the executive discretion in Britain has a has a kind of real medieval feel to it, um, and you can see that in sometimes in our international treaties and the negotiations of it. No sense of power sharing. No sense that you have to kind of listen to the other side. It's not a kind of diet. It's not debate. Parliamentary debate in Britain is not kind of kind of dialogic or, mm. or kind of. Or, it's kind of there's a once you have power and you, a winner takes all. Yeah, she she really takes all. Yeah, and and as you say, in the last couple of years in particular, that um, 
that has been a fait accompli. It's not something that you see a kind of debate or discussion or decision process. It is just rubber stamping what the effective government of the day is doing, which in in recent years has been at times bizarre. And just part of that relationship between the monarchy and the state is about funding, obviously. Um, so they've got their properties. I think I heard a figure of 20 billion um, that the, the monarchy own. And also saw the figure of 86 million last year given from the Exchequer in a sovereign grant. How do the British people feel about that? Is there any kind of discussion and King debate? Charles, King Charles' assets uh, are worth about 1.4 billion. I don't know. I, I think the, the, the figure 20 billion may be the entire crown estate. I think it's um, the properties of the estate. Yeah, it's yeah. the crown estate. That's the, that's the crown estate, which actually is kind of they're, they're, they're held, uh, you, you know, they're, they're, they're held in the public interest. I mean, a royal park um, in Richmond or a um, Trafalgar Square, which are part of the royal estate. I mean, Prince Charles, <laughs> King Charles is never going to sell them. Mm. I mean, they're there. It's, a, it's an idiosyncratic way of holding of holding uh, public assets. And by the way, I say idiosyncratic way of holding public assets, but it's an important point because mm. it relates to my earlier one. Uh, it, it can't, you know, Mon- monarchy intrudes into into day to day life in Britain in a way that not even the British kind of recognise. So, for example, I you know I live a, I live in a flat in London. I, li- I hold it leasehold. Mm. Why do I hold it leasehold? Because the freehold of every piece of real estate in Britain, every piece of earth you stand on, is held by the monarch, mm. and it, and he she delegates it to the, to a, a property holder. So you are. This notion of freehold and leasehold have their or- origins in monarchical power, mm. and it's very, very deep, very deep in our culture. Yeah, and I think it's it's far more pervasive, certainly than from this remove we would often realise. But um, just about that relationship again with King Charles and the public, you know, he's a decent man, but have they forgiven him for his past foibles? And do you think that? Um, there was there ever any sense that, you know, he was just not to be ageist about it, but too old that they might skip a generation and come with someone new and dynamic like William? Or do you think that, you know, he will be embraced by the British public? Well, I think I know people um, who feel strongly about um, the adulterous, uh, as they would see it, uh, becoming... Um, not princess consort, consort, but queen consort, mm. um, and uh, they really resent it. And they really resent also the fact that actually uh, it led to the breakup of the marriage and the death of Lady Di. And you know, Harry's uh, Prince Harry's testimony um, in his um, book Spare you know, makes it very clear that actually, you know, his life and he would say his brother were disfigured and distorted by the death of their mother who had to divorce because his father had an affair. It's a shadow over the entire family. Mm. And actually, a, a lot of people in the country, um, you know, they've moved on. Um, it's a fait accompli. They understand he loved Camilla, but they're not prepared to forgive him. Mm. Um, and I, I would say that I put I, the numbers, a fifth, a, a third maybe, is, feel, feel that strongly about that. Uh, on the other hand, Harry hasn't helped his own cause 
by kind of um you know going out to california <laughs> yeah and kind of and talking all this kind of language of you know american therapy uh, expensive american therapists um having your own truth and all the rest and i think he's kind of i i i i think that's people feel less sympathy for him and more and more for his father and and i think one of the things is is that that's something which i think uh, as i said earlier this man's a good guy. Mm. I mean, he's really trying to be generous. His son, Harry, has said the most dreadful things about him, both in his book and on camera. And yet he still hands out, he holds out the hand of kind of love to his uh, younger son and wants him to come to the, mm. the coronation. And people think, my God, you know, you know <laughs> this guy, he, you know, he's got his foibles. We're not sure we want a king, but he's a good man. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time and we're going to have to leave this subject there. But for now, that was political economist and writer for The Observer and Guardian, Will Hutton. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Coming up, did you know in 2022, net sales for Tiffany and company totaled over $4 billion. It's just had a big revamp and it has big plans for expansion. We'll examine if the sleeping beauty of Fifth Avenue in New York can become iconic once more. That's all after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue is not only a landmark building in New York, it's featured in many iconic movies, songs and magazine covers. To this day, it's still an iconic institution. But can it reclaim its place in the world of high-end jewellery? To tell us more about its history and indeed its plans for the future, I'm joined now by Dr Ashley Morgan, who's Senior Lecturer in the School of Art and Design at Cardiff Metropolitan. University. Welcome to the programme, Ashley. Thank you for having me, Mandy. Okay, so Ashley, just to kick us off today, tell us a little bit about the size of this company. What type of revenues is it generating in 2023 and for, for the recent years? Okay, well, Tiffany is really interesting because in 2021, it was bought by LVMH, the uh, Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton uh, luxury brand group. Um, and it was bought for, um, what is interesting, I think, is the numbers are in the billions. Mm. It was bought for 15.8 billion and it had a, over, it was a turnover of 5.12 billion in 2022. Now, what is quite interesting, I think, about these very high-end uh, companies is, um, first of all, how acquisitive they are and what they want to have in their portfolio. So LVMH also have Christine Dior, they have Bulgari, they have Chaumet, and they have Reposi, as well as Tiffany. Mm. And it seems like a massive juggernaut coming around, trying to build up this huge um, portfolio of companies in order to make money. And it's really interesting, I think, to talk about um, the... Uh, the billions rather than the millions that they're making. And what is interesting about LVMH, of course, it's, um, it isn't even the number one luxury brand in the world. It's the number 10th. Yeah, it's the 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 figures are just eye watering. Um, mm. When you mm-hmm. look at a, a conglomerate like that, and, and the acquisitions yeah. that they've they've taken over in recent years yeah. have been stunning. But just on that luxury um, market, when it's when we're talking about jewellery specifically, yeah. do consumers and and customers indeed behave differently when they're looking at jewellery compared to say other things like handbag or fashion? Like, can they approach jewellery in the same way that they have? things like Dior uh, and the fashion line. 
I, I don't know. I think jewellery is different. I think particularly a line like Tiffany, um, it's got the iconic blue box. Of course, the, cafe, the new cafe and the new landmark on Fifth Avenue is called the Little Blue Box. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting history that goes into that, the sort of opening of the small blue blocks and the way in which the jewellery is represented and the way in which it's sold is this in this very iconic, luxurious way. And I think what I think is quite interesting is that a lot of people will book appointments with Tiffany to go and get their wedding bands, for example, on a trip to New York. I know of a few people who've already done that. Mm. Um, so they they'll um they might um they might propose in New York and then they'll go straight to Tiffany's to choose, pick out their wedding bands, for example. And I think there is something very interesting about the relationship between Tiffany and New York that's different with perhaps other things like clothing. I think if you think of high end clothing, maybe the place you're thinking of much more is Paris. Mm. For example, but this this symbiotic relationship between um, Tiffany's and New York, and as you said at the beginning, and the, its relationship with popular culture in film, in songs, um, and it's endlessly replicated. And and what is important is the jewellery, and it isn't just diamonds. Of course, they really want to um, they really want to talk about their watch line because they are very much in the market now for luxury watches. Also LVMH, of course, own Tag Heuer, mm. uh, one of the famous uh, watch brands. And, and I think it is a different way. People will approach it in a different way than they would other sort of high-end luxury items. Mm. And am I right in thinking what they're trying to do here is attract a, a younger audience? And how, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. I think, I think the whole 1940s, 1950s, is a little bit stale, the whole Audrey Hepburn. Lots of people now perhaps might be unaware of Audrey Hepburn, but they will have heard, for example, of Kendrick Lamar, mm. the uh, rapper who in uh, 2022, Tiffany created a diamond crown for him to wear at Glastonbury when he headlined there in 2022. They've got people like Gal Gadot, the um, Wonder Woman actress, on there, who's one of their brand ambassadors. They've got Beyonce, but also they're very, very connected. Asia is one of the their biggest customers and they've got one of the K-pop stars Rose as also one of their brand ambassadors. They've also got Hailey Bieber who's in her 20s as I understand it. So I think they're looking for a much more diverse clientele. Mm. And a much more clientele of the now. You could argue, uh, I would never argue, of course, that even Beyonce might be seen as a little bit passe, but in terms of a celebrity status with younger people. But now you've got Hayley Bieber and K-pop involved. I think there's very much this idea of, yeah, you know, young people. Um, I was reading on their website that people wanted were in New York for the opening of the Landmark store, and they wanted to buy their daughter a graduation present from mm. high school. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that that that'll be very much uh, for some people the go-to place. And do you think, Ashley, like so? So, LVMH have a record in being able to to translate middle class to luxury brands. Do you think that mm. um, t- Tiffany they can they could do that with something like Tiffany? And indeed, I suppose I'm talking about it now in a way that. Um, 
I don't want to demean the brand in any way. It means an awful lot to people, as you said. It, course, it, it is an yeah. experience and everything. But it has sort of kind of gone backways in recent years. It does seem, as you say and suggest, they're kind of old fashioned and fuddy duddy. Do you think that they, they can do that in, in ways that they have with other products or other acquisitions? I think they already have. I think they already have done that mm. in terms of, uh, you know, they, they, they've really got their finger in the zeitgeist of um, young people and celebrity. I think much more than perhaps other companies like Bulgari or um, Chaumet, which, you know, are very, they're incredibly high end. You tend to only see them advertised on in the kind of when you're on a nice aeroplane going to a nice destination. Bulgari, for example, will be one of the um, one of the uh, adverts in, a, in, in the magazines on in the aeroplane. Mm. Whereas Tiffany, I think there's something they're trying to make Tiffany a little bit more street. Mm. And also it is a bit more high street. Mm. It isn't just now available in, in Paris or, or New York. There's one in London. They're opening shops up. There's one in Birmingham for example, in, in the UK. So it, it's, it wants to be a little bit more high street and a bit more available while also keeping this incredibly iconic um, uh, luxury role. Mm, it's, it's not an easy juxtaposition, mm. really, because they're trying mm-hmm. to do two very different things at the same time. But I suppose the question would come at that high end level if you're investing as some celebrities yeah. and people would do investing 50,000 to 100,000 in a gemstone, you're not really likely, you're probably opt for Cartier rather than than Tiffany. I, I, I don't know, but, but Tiffany have got the little blue box, you see. They've got the colour. Mm. They've got that brand that you can see before you see the jewellery. Mm, mm. And I think that's what, you know, you could pop it in a Christmas stocking as well as propose to somebody on top of the Empire State And you'd building. know instantaneously the brand you know is so the iconic. Brand, and they've got that colour. They've mm. got that blue teal colour. And it doesn't really matter what other companies do. Everything comes in that little blue box. Yeah, I was reading know. actually about the the colour itself and how mm. they've they've patented the 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 panatone right. for themselves and how it came right. about was uh, an original catalogue that they developed way back in, in the early days of their uh, their um, establishment. But like they've mm-hmm. been very progressive over the years. They've they've produced some iconic things like they've designed the New York Police Department logo and they've been responsible right. for some of the iconic. Um, moments, I suppose, in in film and and we all yeah. remember, obviously, Breakfast at Tiffany's. What yeah. do you think was is the thing that keeps it uh, top of mind in in uh, in terms of their brand? I, I wonder really whether it's this relationship they've got with New York, mm. because Tiffany, it's still on Fifth, Fifth Avenue. It hasn't moved anywhere. The landmark has become a bigger and more glamorous landmark. It's been designed by Frank Geary, really well known, um, iconic, and very sort of very modern uh, architect. And it, it's this glamour of New York, I think, mm. uh, that keeps it going, even though there are other branches elsewhere. You can still go to New York, and and I think it's that experience. Mm. And you know? any idea of what the the revamp cost us or cost them? Oh, the oh, the, uh, billions, 
I mean, it was um, LVMH itself in 2022 was worth 22.7 billion. Mm. Um, I think in one year, Tiffany turned over this 5.12 billion. I think it probably cost a fairly pretty penny. Yes. <laughs> and the advertising, they have pulled all the stops out on the advertising as well. The way in which it's, uh, even though it's part of LVMH, you can still tell it's still Tiffany. Mm. You know, it, it it it's it's still there, and it's still about diamonds. It's still because all the watches they're producing now, uh, again, have diamonds in them or on them, and are sold as a diamond product. Mm. So, in terms of um, the projections that uh, LVMH are making for their future finances, mm-hmm. I saw some staggering figures that they're predicting for twenty twenty five. They're fairly confident. Do you think that they'll be able to to deliver the the level of return that they're suggesting? Uh, absolutely, because what we always we always have to remember is that in all the economic crises that have happened in the past twenty odd years. There is still a huge strata of people who want to buy this kind of luxury item. That doesn't change. Mm. In the recession of 2008, although Tiffany was in sort of murky waters in the 2000s, um, there are still people who, for whom their finances are entirely unaffected by the kind of normal issues of things like recessions. Mm. So there will still be people who want to buy these things. And also don't forget, of course, Mandy, there are things like the Met Gala. And every year that 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 will happen. Tiffany will be there lending its its luxury items to the well-known, the great and the good. They will always be featured. There mm. will always be something every year. So I have no doubt that if the projection figures are huge, that they will reach them. Obviously, tapping into the global luxury jewellery sales last year yeah. rose by an estimated twenty-eight billion. They were up a quarter, so they're 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 on the money and tapping into something. Uh, but for now, I'm afraid we've run out of time. That was Dr. Ashley Morgan, who's senior lecturer in the School of Art and Design at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Ashley, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app, which is powered by GoLoud. Next week, we'll be finding out how the big four are rolling out more training for recruits with post-lockdown teamwork issues. And if you want to get in contact with us about that or about any of today's items, you can do so at takingstock@newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and also to the production team of Simon Keane and Sinead Kyo with Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening today and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillness Ireland. Sunday morning at nine on News Talk.